Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 266 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we feature a conversation with good friend and social organizer, Casey R. Pegg. Casey and I discuss social justice, some of his travels. We talk about gender a bit as well. It's a great conversation with Casey R. Pegg. We also have an EW essay by yours truly, titled B.U., and another beautifully crafted and wonderfully read essay by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, titled A Sentimental Education. We have a poem as well called Quite Long. And all of this, of course, as is always the case, will be imbued with the energy of several great tunes. Let's get to it. Episode 266 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
be you. I am not sure what matters more, you or me, he or she, they or them, or we. The sentiment posturing on a notion that every person has a right to be whoever they are seems fair, doesn't it? Though we all would agree that one shouldn't be causing hurt or harm. Now, right here must come the charm so that I don't piss you off and lose you. What in a person's being their true self could cause hurt or harm? Does confusing people by not abiding our social norms do it? Does one contradicting their physical anatomy do it? Does requesting adamantly a different sort of acceptance or classification making others unduly perplexed and uncomfortable? Maybe everyone should fit in regardless of personal proclivity and feeling to do something else, to be someone other than what has been physically and culturally defined as their self. Though I don't think that sounds like freedom. The other day a close young relative of mine said to me that they, he, was bisexual and didn't know what to do. With little confidence and much concern, I fluttered to say, just be you.
Casey Pegg, is that you? It is I. How's it going? <laughs> good, good. Thank you for being on Troubadours and Rock On Tours once again. Uh, my pleasure as always. Good to, good to hear it from you. It's been a while. It has been. It has been. But for those, of you, for those who haven't heard you speak on the program, let me share a little background. Here we go. Casey Pegg has long been interested in personal and social transformation. Born in western Pennsylvania, Casey has studied philosophy and psychology and went on to earn a graduate degree in the study of mysticism and religious experience at the University of Kent in Canterbury, UK. While overseas, Casey became involved in a number of social movements and lived in various protest camps, squats, and intentional communities. Since returning to the United States, Casey has worked with a variety of environmental justice organizations. In 2014, they received a community organizer training through Missourians Organizing for Reform and Empowerment, a.k.a. MORE, which is, made, is what made them decide to become a professional social justice organizer. Casey is also one of the founding members of the Central Susquehanna Valley Showing Up for Racial Justice chapter, a steering committee member of Mondragon Books, an independent 
some might say radical bookstore in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Casey recently founded Listen Up, a grassroots social justice organization, and is also co-host of a new podcast, Shouts and Whispers, about social change, spirituality, art, and culture. Casey is passionate about animal rights, likes to cook, draw and write, and is gender non-binary, hence the use of the pronoun they to describe them. Ladies and gentlemen, it's nice, again, to introduce to you Casey R. Pegg on the program. So, Casey, let's get right into it. Your introduction was pretty impressive. It's nice uh, to have a person of your experience and vision on the program. And I want to, I want you to kind of start us from back a bit when you were in the UK. You talk about being involved in intentional communities and squats. Uh, ex- explain that a bit, would you? Uh, sure. So, um, so I got my religious studies degree in Canterbury, England, and. Um, when I was an undergrad at the University of Pittsburgh, I got really interested in social justice. Uh, I was involved with the campus women's organization and a few other things. And um, so I guess I decided that my two main interests in life were uh, spirituality and uh, social change. So I decided to go get a degree in the study of mysticism and religious experience to kind of fulfill the one desire. And then while I was over there, um, I also kind of had a, a political awakening, which wasn't really planned, but, um, I, I was hosting, I hosted some people at my place in England through couch surfing. And a lot of the people that I hosted were activists and they started telling me about stuff that was going on in the UK. And so I eventually, um, got involved with the climate camp movement, which was a, um, anarchist informed, uh, environmental justice project where, um, every year they would kind of take over a piece of land at a, you know, at the, at a site in the UK where there was some type of, uh, environmental injustice, uh, taking place. The first one I went to was to protest the construction of a new coal-fired power station. This was back in this was back in 2000, either 2007 or 2008. My memory is a little fuzzy about that. Um, and I met a lot of people through that. And after I finished my degree, I, I also um, met my uh, my girlfriend at the time, who I was with for three years. So. In that time period, I, I traveled around the UK and other places in Europe. Um, I lived in a in like a squatted eco village in London for a period of time. Um, I lived in a community in Copenhagen where they were trying to build a uh, a floating eco village on, in the in the in the bay, basically. And, uh, yeah, various other, you know, collective houses and uh, um, protest camps related to environmental stuff. And also, um, you know, even back when I was 
when I was even back before um, the war in Syria, immigration was a huge issue in Europe. So I also participated in a lot of uh, migrant justice actions as well. Um, yeah, so that's the long and short of it, basically. And when this is going on, basically you're in your 20s, I suppose, right? Yeah, I was like, um, I was in like the latter half of my 20s. And then you move back to the U.S. and uh, you start finding and starting communities that are similar to what you experienced in the U.K., it seems to me. Yeah, um, I would say more finding than starting. Um, I was really nervous when I, when I moved back because I really had lost touch with a lot of things that were happening in, in the United States and I was just like, oh, man, is it going to be different? Like, am I going to find things to get engaged with? And as soon as I came back, I immediately got pulled into the anti-fracking movement. Um, you know, I had heard things while I was over in Europe, but I didn't really, you know, know the magnitude of, of the problem. Um, so, yeah, I've been involved with that type of stuff ever since. And uh, you, you mentioned a couple of... Uh, groups and uh, the bookstore as well uh, you um, you're kind of involved in I don't know if I pronounced the bookstore right the name is it Mondragon or Mondragon or books how did it uh, I think Mondra Mondragon Mondragon maybe Mondragon I mean actually it's a Spanish word so technically it would be Mondragon I think <laughs> Mondragon um, yeah and um, you know th this is uh uh, a radical bookstore. You and I met at a radical book fair a few years yeah. back, and mm -hmm. uh, all, all of what you're doing—social justice uh, organizing—and um, uh, you know, kind of uh, embracing those causes that the majority of our culture or our society, I should say, does not uh, embrace. Why do you think you're compelled? In, in that way, I mean, do you have an innate sense of justice, and and uh, I guess through that you're seeing a lot of injustice. Um, I think that I've always kind of, I've always felt like I sort of chafed against institutions, and I've always had a keen sense of illegitimate authority. Um, I'm always, I've always been a person who wants to question the rules and break the rules if they don't make any sense to me. Uh, and I think as I've gotten older and started to understand a lot of more of the implications of the problems in, in the world today, I think that in some ways it's, it's a, it's a form of, it's a form of therapy. I think that, you know, I, I'm a, a member of a relatively privileged class. I have I have white skin. I'm I'm educated and stuff. You know, I could choose to ignore these problems and be relatively okay f for the time being, as many people do. But I think that, you know, now that I've now that I've looked and and I have a sense of the the magnitude of what's going on, I think that. If I if I led a life that wasn't engaged, I would always have this uneasy feeling in the pit of my stomach. And 
I still have an uneasy feeling in the pit of my stomach, but I think being active and, and engaged politically makes me feel like I have some degree of control of, over, over what's happening. May I ask, how old are you now? I am 35. Wait, so, am I? 30? Yeah, I'm 35. And so, yeah, you're you, you're not. It, well, this is not just uh, some sort of phase you're going through. You, uh, it, this is uh, a part of who you are as an individual, for for sure. It seems to me, uh, because when we're young, uh, a lot of folks, it's easier to be idealistic, because oftentimes, especially when you're from the privileged class I, that I am, uh, uh, and and you are part of. Uh, you know, male, white, um, you know, uh, and a couple other things we could probably attach to that. Uh, it, it's easy to to be sheltered from some of the challenges uh, and just be idealistic, the real challenges out there. And then once you want to become part of the, the uh, you know, the mass culture, the, the, uh, the norm, so to speak, you could. And often people do because it's easier. Yeah. And, 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 you know, but you haven't. And I, I personally, I commend you for that. Um, and I, you probably would say, well, you have no choice because that's who you are. And as you just described, it seems that you would be unhappy if you didn't do what you are indeed doing. So I guess the, the next thing I, I, would, I would get to is why do you think most other people aren't? Is it because it's too hard? To, to seek social justice, to question the rules, to question authority? Or do they not see it at all? Do they not sense it? Uh, well, that's a good question, and I'm not sure that I have the answer, but I guess what I think is that, um, you know, it's easy to choose the path of, of least resistance, and I think that often the strongest social movements have come from communities where their their back was to the wall they were being actively exterminated basically and it's for them they were just like we have no choice we have to we have to resist we have to struggle or die basically and for the, for those of us who have the I mean, I guess some would call it a luxury. Um, others might call it a curse. The, the, you know, the privilege to be able to sit back and relax and not not struggle, and everything will be more or less okay. Um, yeah, I think it, it's easy for a lot of people to, to choose the path of least resistance, and uh, it's hard. You know, it's it's punishing for anyone who stands up to power. There, there's punishment. Um, you know. People, people are jailed every day for uh, protest and civil disobedience. Uh, some people get, you know, really hefty sentences for that type of thing. And I think that um, I think that more and more, it's always been criminalized. And I think uh, it will be even further criminalized, criminalized as time goes along. And uh, you know. Um, well, I lost my train of thought, but that's probably enough of, of an answer. No, that yeah, that works. Uh, that, I think that was a very coherent uh, response to my question. I appreciated Casey Pegg on the program.
troubadours and rock on tours, social justice organizer, among other things. And um, I think this is about the third time you've been on the program, maybe the fourth, but I think it's been the third, right? The third, yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to more conversations with you in the future. Um, is it is it uh, enough to call you a social organizer, or would you like to be uh, identified with another sort of uh, title or position or what have you? Uh, I generally refer to myself as a community organizer, but um, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I. I think. I really just think of myself as as just a regular person who's trying to figure all this stuff out, like anyone else. And I don't. Um, I don't want to set myself apart from other people because I think it's everybody's responsibility to be engaged and, and try to work out the the problems confronting human civilization daunting though it may be very very much so uh now i like to switch gears a little bit because before you know it our time will be up for uh this go around uh the the other thing i'd like to get into with you is your um i guess it's a choice to uh consider yourself gender non-binary Right. I, I was reading your bio and I'm using pronouns of they and them. And I'm I'm uh, hoping you'll be able to give myself and many of our listeners some insight as to what that means and, and why it's important to you to be to be looked at or to be considered identified as gender non-binary. Yeah. Um, well, when you messaged me before the show and, and kind of lighted on that topic, I I was in, yeah I, I was interested by that and I'm I'm happy to talk about it. I think I don't actually get the opportunity to talk or think about it enough. So um well uh I guess I, I guess first a disclaimer I I'm just I think a lot of people you know who identify as gender queer or gender nonconforming or non-binary or or trans I think everybody has a different conception of what that means. So my ideas about what that means does not represent everyone. And and that's kind of the point, actually. That's all okay. Um, So, uh, yeah. um, I mean, I I, when I was growing up, I think I always sort of, I mentioned that I kind of chafed against rules. So I also kind of chafed against gender rules. I I was like, um, okay, so I'm a boy, but why can't I learn how to sew or or why can't I wear a dress and and stuff like that? And, um, and I think, uh, for most of my life, I have identified as a cisgender man. And what that means is, um, my the way that I identify myself and think about myself is, you know, as cis, what cisgender means is my my chosen identity is consistent with what was written on my birth certificate, basically, um, as opposed to transgender, which means um, that some people would say that it means that you have gender dysphoria, which means that the way that you think about yourself or you experience gender dysphoria, which means the way that you think about yourself 
and choose to identify is different from what's written on your birth certificate, essentially, and or, or the way that you are perceived by people. Um, so, as an adult, I kind of I kind of recognize these tendencies within myself, and I. I, I talked to somebody about it and I was like, Hey, maybe I'm, maybe I'm one of those non-binary people. And this person was like, well, you should think about it. You know, before, before you make that decision, why don't you see if you can, if you can be male in a way that's fits the way that you want to be in the world and kind of pushes the boundaries of what it means to be male. I mean, there's no rule that says that men can't wear dresses or, or whatever. So I tried that for a while, but then I, I think just over time, the category of maleness just kind of started to collapse for me, and I, I stopped. it stopped seeming like a relevant or, or coherent concept for me. And so I, at one point, I was just like, I'm just going to ask people to start calling me they and them instead of he, and uh, been doing that ever since. Now... This is strictly for my understanding, this question, and maybe it's, it's too personal and you don't have to answer it. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. But does any of what we're talking about here have to do with sexual orientation? Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, well, I mean, I am... I am mainly attracted to cisgender women. Um, so, I mean, I always considered myself a straight man, basically. And I think that it's important to say that sexual orientation and gender identity are two separate things. Mm-hmm. So, um, but they're not entirely separate because I've, I've talked to other uh, gender nonconforming people and, you know, and, they're like, okay, well, if you know, if you don't identify as a man, then you know, liking women doesn't make you straight <laughs> anymore, or you shouldn't identify as heterosexual necessarily. Um, and then for me, it's also kind of strange to think about. Um, well, if I don't, if I don't recognize two genders for myself, then why am I only attracted to? cisgender women and uh yeah yeah i mean i I continue to think about it i'm not sure that it really makes sense but it it doesn't necessarily have to right exactly i mean the the big thing for me when i'm trying to uh, understand is the the whole judgment and trying to fit people into categories which is wrong you know in my opinion trying to fit people into categories and judging that they're right or they're they're on you know they're being uh, reasonable or whatever the case may be. Having said that, I know a lot of folks from my own um, uh, experiences and conversations personally and, and just, you know, listening to the larger discussion uh, regarding uh, being gender nonconformist and sexual orientation and all of this. What, what about those who say, oh, this is so confusing. Why, why, why do you confuse it so much? What's the point of all this? How would you respond to that mentality? Um, can you say a little more about about that, maybe where it's that's coming from? Well, there are a lot of folks, once they start hearing uh, uh, people that are more 
you know, they consider themselves traditional in the way that they look at uh, who they are with regard to sexual, sexual orientation, sex, gender, all of, all of those different categories. And I know they overlap, uh, but they also are separate. The, and then when they hear folks say, well, you know, I'm like how you're, you're sharing your, your uh, take on things. Uh, your your cisgender as compared to uh, transgender and what your preferences are with regard to sexual orientation or your sexual attraction, I should say. And then they get all con- – and you start using the words they and, and them instead of he, she. Um, and, and they start saying, well, this is so confusing. Why, why would anybody want to confuse all of this? And they get frustrated. And, and the reason I bring this up is so that we can address that directly – uh, you know, the frustration often when people are, as you know, given your work, I'm sure, the frustration usually is what leads to the pushback or the, the criticism of something that when people don't understand, they get, they get nervous, they get afraid. So how do you respond to that fear, that, uh, that uh, you know, sense of, wow, I don't understand what the heck you're trying to make me un- believe or, or change? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think... The tendency to get disgruntled with things that are are foreign to you and that you don't understand is a perfectly understandable human tendency. Um, I don't think that excuses it. I I think that um, I guess what I would say is, you know, think of it as an opportunity to broaden your horizons. Um, And also, if you if you don't understand it, that's okay. Like if you, if you don't understand why I want you to call me they and them instead of he, then you don't necessarily need to just, just call me they and them and don't worry about it. Um, I mean, you know, you don't, one doesn't need to understand or uh, endorse somebody else's religious views in order to support their right to practice their religion. So, you know, I was thinking about this and I think that I think that something w- w- what's happening that's interesting is that I think gender was really, you know, throughout western history was really considered more of a public affair. And I think in modern times it's kind of it's kind of making it's kind of becoming more private, more governed by um more governed by the individual than, than the public. And I think that's okay because it really doesn't, you know, I don't think it hurts anyone. And uh, I can understand why that would be upsetting for people who are invested in the traditional way of, of doing things. But um, at the same time, uh, you know, the, the I, I think people, people sometimes think that it's really frivolous and it's, really not. I mean, my case is, is that, you know, I don't, I'm not so, uh, unhappy with being looked upon and referred to as a man, but I think that some, I, I know that other people experience a much higher degree of gender dysphoria, um, to the extent that they really just can't be happy living by society's expectations and they absolutely have to express their true identity. And I think that's great. And I think that, um, 
when I, I know that when people do that, they expose themselves to a lot of reactionary violence. And so I guess my point is that as a society, learning to think about this differently and to have different uh, behaviors and social practices around it is really important for for people who, who for people who are experiencing that that type of violence and experiencing that type of, of repression. You handled that difficult question very very well. I appreciate it, Casey. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, believe it or not, we're just about out of time this go-around with Casey R. Pegg, community organizer, social justice activist, I'm going to call you as well. Um, wonderful conversation. Any closing thoughts or insights you'd like to share with the listeners? Anything coming up? Any contact information as well you'd like to share? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I want to I wanna plug uh, Mondragon Bookstore, the, the independent bookstore that I'm a part of. And I want to pu- plug uh, Shouts and Whispers, this podcast that I'm doing with my friend Joanne. And um, if you want, you can look me up on Facebook. It's uh, Casey R. Pegg. The R is what distinguishes me from the other Casey Peggs out there. And uh, my Twitter handle is Casey underscore Pegg. That's C-A-S-E-Y underscore P-E-G-G. And uh, I'm going to be, I'll post about Mondragon and about uh, the podcast and about um, Listen Up, which is the social justice organization that I'm helping to get established too. So yeah, check me out. Great. And, and how about a bit of uh, wisdom? Um, I was reading the Tao Te Ching, and I love the way that it says that the best, the worst type of leader is one who is feared. The second best is the one who is loved. But the best type of leader is the one who nobody even realizes that they're there half the time. That the person who leads and then the people afterwards, the people who they've led are say, oh, we did this all by ourselves. I love it. Thank you so much. I love the Dao De Ching myself. Casey R. Pegg, a pleasure as always talking with you, and I look forward to talking with you again in the future. Good luck with everything. Same to you, man. Thanks for talking to me. Always a pleasure. Ciao. Like a star of
dress Now everybody that's broken Get the fuck on the ground See we thought that we saw that he had a gun Thought that it looked like he started to run Thought that we saw that he had a gun Thought that it looked like he started to run Sentimental Education Honey West, one of my earliest memories. Anne Francis as a sexy secret agent, her face looming above me from the TV screen. I'm with my soon-to-be brother-in-law's brother, a future sad case, and we're waiting for the rehearsal dinner for my sister's marriage. I'm not happy about the marriage, but Honey comforts me. Her show lasted only one season. In my life, she lingers forever, like a super-potent spy perfume. Miss Judy. She takes me to the land of Hachimalachi, where I learn things about myself and about the world. As she preaches kindness and consideration and thoughtfulness, she seems distant. I can learn from her, but cannot love her. The Bradley sisters from Petticoat Junction. Betty Joe and Bobby Joe and Billy Joe. During the credits for the show, they bathe in the town's water tank and jauntily grab their towels before this week's hijinks ensue. Were the Bradley girls frolicking in the town's water supply? What did the townspeople think? I think of the naked girls in water on my TV. Even the name of the town a backwater peopled by rubes, conjures erotic notions. Miss McCurry, my kindergarten teacher at Whittier Elementary School, my last public school before I'm placed in the care of nuns. Miss McCurry, in my memory, looks like the Mary Tyler Moore of the Dick Van Dyke show, but perhaps I'm mixing memories. However, the hair, the smile the eyes. I am deeply in love with her. Laura Petrie, played by Mary Tyler Moore, seen on reruns of the Dick Van Dyke show on sick days and during the summer, dancing in her black capris, adoring her husband Rob, the TV writer, who spent his days conjuring jokes with Maury Amsterdam, steeped in borscht, and Sally, a funny dame, played by the sassy Rose Marie. Sally was one of the guys. Laura was a wife. Ellie Mae Clampett, one of the clan of the Beverly Hillbillies, more televisual hayseeds.
cousin to Jethro, daughter to Jed, granddaughter to Granny. Blonde, pigtailed, crop-shirted, naive, animal-loving, frisky, and an old maid at nineteen. Another country girl, alluring to the audience for nine seasons, to me, and, I suspect, to the button-down Miss Hathaway, the banker's secretary. Lola Falana, Joey Heatherton, and Margaret. Singers, dancers, showgirls, comedians, sex kittens. They could do it all. Strutting and belting on variety shows on the three networks, or touring Southeast Asia with the leering Bob Hope. Nuns, so many nuns, so many years of so many nuns, fiercely intelligent, belligerently faithful, sometimes stern, sometimes kind. You never know which you would encounter or which entrenched you most, the sternness or the kindness. Black-stocking brides of Christ with just a trace of hair peeking through their post-Vatican II hairbands. Agent 99, pouty Barbara Feldman, purred to her nincompoop colleague, Maxwell Smart. She was, of course, the smarter one, but she adored her dumb man. Another spy I loved. Jaime the robot loved her, too. Samantha, the witch on Bewitched. The campy guest stars, Agnes Moorhead, Paul Lind, Alice Ghostly, and the dual Darrens, Dick York and Dick Sargent, intrigued me as much as Elizabeth Montgomery, who played the witch. My favorite role of hers was in a TV movie about Lizzie Borden, in which she strips off her bloody clothes after giving her mother and father forty wax with an axe. Catwoman Julie Newmar on Batman Slinky feline criminal in a form-fitting catsuit. Meows and puns and goofy henchmen. She broke Batman's heart. And maybe Robin's. The boy wonder surely had his secrets. Perhaps he preferred Eartha Kitt's Catwoman. Ginger and Marianne. The Marilyn Monroe Mankay and the corny Kansas farm girl. Two poles of American womanhood stranded on a desert island with a grouchy skipper, his dim first mate, a snobby rich couple, and an endlessly inventive professor. In a forgotten stash of girly mags, in a basement, I discovered a spread of Tina Louise. To my confusion and delight, there was Ginger, in grainy black and white, in lingerie, in the nude, photographed when she was a striving starlet, some years before the fateful voyage of the minnow. Gilligan would have killed the skipper, or Mr. Howell, for a copy of that magazine. Genie, a genie with a midriff-bearing harem outfit and a cozy, pillow-filled apartment-slash-cell in a bottle. Barbara Eden played the helpmate, consort, and frustrated lover of the hapless astronaut, Major Anthony Nelson, played by Larry Hagman, the son of Mary Martin, who played Peter Pan. The Space Age meets the Seraglio. Jeannie calls the Major, 
master. That girl, Marlo Thomas as Anne Marie, a kooky actress from New Rochelle trying to make it in the big city. An indomitable spirit out on auditions and madcap mini-adventures. Marlo Thomas reminded me of my sister, who left home and got married. I forgave my sister for abandoning me. Who could stay mad at that girl? Mary Richards, a working girl in the city, played by Mary Tyler Moore, no longer married in TV life to Dick Van Dyke. By the time she tossed her blue knit beret in the air and turned the world on with her smile, my sentimental education was well underway.
quite long. Savage lace graces your midriff as I surmise the wisdom of looking there too long. Happenstance has put in such close proximity my eyes, your stomach, and that simply sensuous pantyline through your jean shorts instead of a tepid thong. Oh, my, this past winter was quite long. And there you have it, episode 266 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our good friend Casey R. Pegg, social justice organizer. Keep up the good work, my friend. I'd also like to thank our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis for another wonderful piece. 
and these musical artists. Vampire Weekend, Sarah Jaffe, Benjamin Booker, the B-52s, Fantella Bass, and of course Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Terence Blanchard, and Branford Marsalis, too. Until next week, enjoy this one. Thanks for listening.